He shall reign forevermore. You're going to see how that comes together this morning. And just a little simple phrase, good news, great joy. That's what the angel said to the shepherds, that though they were frightened because the glory of the Lord would shine all around them, they said to him, do not be afraid, for we bring to you good news. And that good news produces the greatest of all joy. What does the Bible say about that? You know, as I go back in my notes over the last 40 years that I've been preaching, I realize that there are so many sermons over those 40 years that I've preached on Christmas, 26 of them here at Christ Community Church. But realizing that there are such a variety of texts to use during the Christmas season and to pinpoint certain aspects of the Christmas season so people will understand them and realize the fullness of all that Christ has in their lives is just the most beautiful thing. I love the Christmas season and I love the story of Christmas. It's that old, old story that never grows old. In fact, we used to sing that growing up about the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his glory. We used to sing that in my church growing up as a kid, and, and there'd be old folks in the church who would get up, and they would give their testimony about when they heard the good news of the story of the gospel. And they hear that good news, and it brought to them great and wonderful joy. And then someone else in the auditorium would get up, and they would share when they gave their life to Christ, when they heard the good news and brought them great joy. And I can remember hearing those stories over and over again. In realizing that the story of the gospel, as great as it is, as wonderful as it is, it's like it's fresh every time you hear it. It never grows old. It never becomes stale. It never is dry. For truly it is the living gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. How important is that? It's so important, especially for us, as we understand that, that as uh, former Vice President Joe Biden had said, that this is going to be a dark winter. A dark winter. He said on December the 2nd that 250,000 people will die before January. I'm not so sure he's right about that. But that's what he said. And then right on the heels of that, Deborah Burks, the White House coronavirus response coordinator, said these words. She said that the surge of the coronavirus will be the worst event in the history of America. She's wrong. I don't care what coordinator she is. She's wrong. Ask the people of 1918 when 675,000 Americans died. When 50 million people around the world died. Where 500 million people, a third of the world, was infected with that virus. That would probably be one of the worst events in American history. I'm not a historian, but I would take that one over this one. And yet, 
amidst all of that, the narrative that the news media wants to paint to you as a dark, depressing, difficult days ahead. I got news for you. It's only a dark winter if your soul is dark. It's not a dark winter if your soul understands the desire of the nations, Haggai 2.7. Or if you know the delight of the people, Malachi 3, verse number 1. And if you know the good news that brings great joy, it doesn't make any difference how bad things are around you. The light of the gospel has shone down within you. And because it has, there's always the joy that overcomes all the darkness around you because of Christ who lives within you. And that's the gospel that we preach. That's the greatness of Christianity, that we understand Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And so what we are looking at and what we looked at last week was the expectation of the dawning of that light and trying to show you how there were a remnant of people who were anticipating the light that would come because it had been dark for so long. There had been no voice from heaven until the angel spoke on that night in Bethlehem to the shepherds. And the beauty of that would springboard into the glorious gospel that would come to those in the land of Israel and beyond. But I want to help you understand something because you get asked this question all the time. And that is, what did they know? How much could they possibly know? I mean, could they possibly come to grips with what the Old Testament said and miss it so clearly? How is that? It must be that they didn't know very much, but they did. We forget that. You know, for years, as my children were growing up, we did what we used to do in our church. We did it in our church for 10 years. It's called the Advent Jesse Tree Devotional Book, talking about 25 different promises and prophecies around the Messiah. And remember, we used to do that, bring all the kids up on stage, and we'd go through the week's prophecies, and they'd, we'd review them, and then we'd talk about the one that was going to happen on that day. Maybe you weren't here for that, but that's what we did for 10 years. But while my children were young, we did it for probably 15 or 20 years, helping them understand the prophecies of Christmas. But this year, we did something different. I've done my own little ditty when it comes to the prophecies of Christmas. And we talked about expectation. And what is it the nation of Israel would expect? And so each and every night, I give them one verse in the Old Testament and one verse in the New Testament, the fulfillment of that, to show them what was expected. And so we began at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, which is the story of the gospel in one verse. And that was after sin entered the world because of Adam and Eve, 
the Lord said that the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. And that promise that Adam and Eve received would be a promise that would be passed down to their children generation upon generation. And people would ask, well, how is it that little verse in Genesis 3.15 would be enough for people to understand the gospel, to understand and believe in the coming of the Messiah? How does that verse about the prophecy of the coming seed do that? Well, if you understand the seventh generation from Adam, there was a man that was born. That man's name was Enoch. And for 300 years, Enoch walked with God. And not only did he walk with God, his life was so pleasing to the Lord that he never died. He just walked one day right up into glory. Enoch was a powerful figure in Old Testament theology. And we don't know anything about what Enoch said or believed if we just read the Old Testament. But when you read Jude, you realize what Enoch believed about the coming of the Messiah. Listen to what the Bible says in Jude 3, 14 and 15. It was also about these men, very important. Who are these men? These men are apostates. Who are apostates? Apostates are people who know the truth, who have some semblance of embracing the truth, but they turn their back on what they know to be true and follow error. We'll learn more about that when we come to Hebrews chapter 10, when it talks about people who sin willfully. So, Jude says, it was also about these men, these apostates, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Enoch prophesied. And what did he say? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. What do you mean he came? When Old Testament prophets gave a prophecy, they would speak with such authority and with such surety that when they said it, it's almost as if it had already taken place, although it was in the future because it was so certain to happen. So Enoch the seventh generation from Adam said these words, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now he preached that for 300 years. And I'm sure he would add on more to that. We just don't know all that he said. But Jude, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, 
tells us what Enoch said. Now we know what Enoch knew. Now we also know that in the seventh generation from Adam, there were many apostates in the land. That is, they knew the truth about the coming seed. That was a seed of victory. Sin had entered the world. They had been tempted by Satan. But the seed would come and crush the serpent's head, and there'd be victory over Satan. But how was all that going to come? How was all that going to happen? And we don't know all that was said, but what we do know is what Enoch preached for 300 years. Think about that. That's in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 6, you have Noah who, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5, was a preacher of righteousness. And so for 120 years, 120 years, Noah would preach about righteousness. What did he know? How did he know all this? What did he know about the seed? I don't know. But I know that nobody believed when he preached. And he preached about the coming judgment of God. And he preached about people, how they needed to come to that God, but they didn't come. He preached about a worldwide flood of judgment that would come. And it did. And that flood encompassed the world. And every living creature died. Except for those creatures on the ark and Noah and his family. And then they would begin again. And the Lord said, be fruitful and multiply. That's exactly what they did. And the earth began to explode with people all around it once more. And what would they hear? They would hear about the promised seed. They would hear about the Lord coming. Interesting about Jude's prophecy. It's a prophecy about the second coming, not the first coming about when the Lord will come with all of his holy ones. That's the second coming, not the first. But in Old Testament prophecy, they were unable to distinguish between the first and second comings, although they were both taught in the Old Testament. Because they didn't see the church age. That was a mystery that was not revealed to them. It was concealed. But he prophesied about the coming of the Messiah who will reign forever and ever as he executes judgment upon the, all the ungodly people. So they knew about the Lord's coming. They knew about the seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. And after the destruction of the world, Noah and his family, they began to repopulate the earth. And next thing you know, you have the Lord calling Abraham from Ur the Chaldees. And what's he do? He gives him a promise. What's the promise? The promise of a coming seed, the seed that will come from his loins, that will bless the nations of the world. This is all about expectation. And so they, they, what are they expecting? They're expecting this Lord to come who will come in judgment upon all the ungodly people based on what Enoch preached about Noah, who's a preacher of righteousness, and passed that down from generation to generation. So these people were able to understand that now the seed's going to come and bless the nations of the world. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that seed now becomes the substitute in Genesis 22. As Abraham would offer up Isaac there on Mount Moriah, the great Old Testament prophecy about substitutionary atonement, 
Not only was a seed going to come and bless the nations, that seed then now would become a substitute and die in the place of sinners who needed redemption. And so that the gospel story would begin to just grow immensely. And then in Genesis 28, you had the third prophecy around the expectation, and that was all about the staircase that came down out of heaven. When Jacob would fall asleep, have a dream, and he saw the staircase coming down out of heaven, and angels ascending and descending upon the staircase. And when he awoke from his, his sleep, he said these words, I have seen the gate to heaven. Now, every Jewish rabbi will tell you that the staircase is the only way to heaven. But if you ask them, what is that way? What is that staircase? What is the way to heaven? They cannot tell you. But we can tell them. Because Jesus said what? I am the gate. He also said in John 151 to Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet until you see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Because he is the staircase. He is the only entry into heaven. And so this gospel story begins to unravel in such a beautiful way that you're able to see the beautiful picture of the Messiah. So not only is he a seed and not only is he a, a, a substitute, but he's also the staircase, the only entry into heaven. And then you come to Genesis chapter 49. What do you have? You says, Genesis 49, verse number 10, that, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh being translated the one to whom it belongs. So not only is the Messiah a seed, not only is Messiah a substitute, but the Messiah is a staircase. Messiah is Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs, the one born out of the tribe of Judah. And so this expectation begins to grow. And then you come to Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, he is the spotless lamb. He is the lamb that you bring in at Passover. He is the spotless Arneos, the, the young lamb that's brought into the house for three days that they hold and they, 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 they learn to love upon and then they slaughter the lamb. He was that Arneos. He was that spotless lamb. And the, the prophecy begins to unfold till you come to the book of Numbers and there he is in Numbers 24, the star, the star that will shine upon the people. You see that? Now you begin to understand it wasn't just a few words they saw, a few things that, no, this was a full-blown gospel presentation in the Old Testament. And it grew enormously as it was passed down from generation to generation, as more and more of the picture being painted in the Old Testament of the gospel of Christ and the glory of the Messiah was being seen. And so as I take my children through 25 different prophecies, all of them beginning with the letter S, taking them from Genesis to the book of Malachi, showing them exactly what was being unfolded before all the people of Israel. It is a marvelous study. And so when you come to Luke's gospel, 
and the glory of the Lord would shine all around. Listen, how many times have we told you? When John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody asked the question, what are you talking about? What do you mean, the Lamb of God? What are you talking about, John? Nobody asked that question. Because everybody knew. Notice the shepherds didn't ask one question, did they? The glory of the Lord would shine all around them. And they were terribly frightened. Why? Because the glory of the Lord simply is the presence of God manifested in brilliant, shining light. And it came down upon them. They knew they were encountering the living God. They understood that. And they were, as Linus and Snoopy said, sore afraid. They were terribly frightened. And so what happens? The angel said, do not be afraid. Why? Because they bring you good news of great joy. For, that will be for you this day. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior is Christ the Lord. Not one shepherd said, could you explain that to us? What do you mean a Savior? What are you talking about? And, and, and this Savior, he, he's the Messiah? They didn't ask that question. Because they knew. How'd they know? Because the Old Testament told them. That's how they knew. We need to stop thinking that the Jewish people were in the dark and didn't know exactly what the Old Testament prophets said. Oh, they knew. Because it's clearly revealed in the Old Testament. Listen, you and I can figure it out. You know, we're, we, we don't, we're, not, we're not rocket scientists here. And we can figure it out. The Lord's opened our eyes to be able to see the glorious gospel in the Old Testament. They knew. They knew. Shepherds knew. That's why they went in haste to see this thing, this word that was spoken to them. And then they could not wait to share it with Mary and with Joseph and whoever else would hear them. And they went away glorifying and praising God. Why? Because the light had dawned upon the darkness in Israel and the Messiah had arrived. And the Messiah was who? The light of the world. He was the fulfillment of Numbers 24. The star that would shine down. And that's why Simeon would talk about the light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's why Zechariah said, the sunrise from on high has shone down upon us that we might walk in the pathway of peace. This is what he's done. And so you have, you have this expectation of good news that's going to bring great joy. That expectation in Luke chapter 2 is what led to the exclamation of good news, great joy. And what was the exclamation? It was simply this, be not afraid. But what we're going to bring you is the greatest of all news that brings the greatest of all joy. And then you have the extension of the good news that brings good joy. Good, great, good, good news that brings great joy. 
And that is this, it's not just for you. It will be for all the people, not just the Jewish people, but as Simeon would, would, would take from Isaiah, the light of revelation to all the Gentiles. So, so the extension of the good news goes way beyond Israel, for it goes to the Gentile world as well. This is why it's such good news. You live in expectation of it, then it arrives. So let me give you the exclamation about it, which with that exclamation comes an extension, which leads to the expression of it, because it's all expressed in one person, and that is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, we forget that the Old Testament is no different than the New Testament when it comes to presenting the gospel and the Lord as a Savior. We think that in the Old Testament, our Lord was, was a judge, and he was harsh, and he came down on people and killed people. But in the New Testament, he's a God of grace and mercy. But you know what? That's not true. Because he was this God of grace and mercy in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. He's the same God. He's never changed. Now, if you are in the Old Testament and you encounter the Canaanites, they believed in Baal. And, and Baal was a God, not a true God, he was a false God, but he was a God who was indifferent to the needs of the people. That's why in 1 Kings chapter 18, when, when Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to call upon their God and bring down fire from heaven, and they yelled and they screamed and they danced, and, 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 and Elijah said to them, you know, maybe your God's asleep or maybe he's away on a trip someplace. If you yell a little louder, maybe he's going to hear you. He mocked them because, see, you can mock people who have false gods. You can do that. Elijah did it. You can always mock somebody who has a false god. Because you want them to see the fallacy of what they believe. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so they yell louder, and they scream louder, and they cut themselves. And Elijah just mocked them because they were wrong. They were sinners. And they led the nation away from the true gospel and the true God of the gospel. And when Elijah called upon his God, the true God, the only God, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And people began to realize that Elijah's God was a true God, not Baal. And then there was the God Moloch. Remember him? He was the God of hostility. He was the angry God. And so to pacify him, you had to offer your children up on, on the altar and sacrifice your children to appease the, the God of hostility. But he was a false God as well. But the God of the Old Testament is a God of mercy. He's a God of goodness. That's what God told Moses. I'll let all my goodness pass before you. And he proclaimed his long-suffering. He's a God of long-suffering and forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and grace. Because that's who he is. That's the God that we serve. 
He is a savior. He's always been a savior. He is a deliverer. So when the angels gave us the expression of the good news, they said it's expressed in one person, the Messiah, who is the Lord, who is the Savior. And our God wants to be known as a Redeemer, a Rescuer, a Savior. How do we know that? Because that's how he was known in the Old Testament as well. Where? You know, book of Exodus Third chapter, listen to what God says to Moses. He says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are are oppressing them. God says to Moses, I have seen. I have heard. Because he cares. He's not like Baal who's indifferent. He's not like Moloch who's hostile. I've seen the oppression of my people. I understand where they're at. I'm coming down. And so Moses asks him, what is your name? When I go tell them, who should I say sent me? He says, you tell him I am sent you. And he says these words very carefully. He says, this is my name forever. How long is forever? I think it's pretty much forever. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. This is how I want to be remembered. I always want to be remembered as a deliverer, as a savior of man, as a rescuer, as a redeemer of man. That's who our God is. That's what caused the Apostle Paul to say these words. In 1 Timothy 4, verse number 10, that our God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Moses and the memorial name given to him by God as a memorial name is is put together and summed up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4, which says that the Lord Jesus Christ He is a savior of all men. In other words, the only reason you're here today is because God is a savior. The only reason you're alive today is because God is a savior. The only reason anybody in the world is alive today is because God is a savior of men temporally and physically. That is, he allows you to live. Because he's a savior. He's a God of grace, long-suffering, mercy. He's a God of love. And so what's he do? He allows you to be born and to live. Because we know 
that the wages of sin is what? Death. The soul that sins, Ecclesiastes 18, uh, excuse, excuse me, Ezekiel 18, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. We, right now in our country, are more aware of death than ever before. But listen, everybody who died deserved to die. Every one of them deserved to die. That's not a very popular message. But I got news for you. So do you. So why are you alive? Are you alive because you didn't get the virus? No. You're alive because God's a savior of all men. That's why you're alive. That's the only reason you're alive. Because that's what God does. He is a savior. Listen to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Moses says these words, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. In other words, God's a savior. He's a deliverer. He's a rescuer. That's what God does. God rescues you from, from fire. He rescues you from danger. God rescues you from difficulty and hardship. He rescues you from sickness. Why? God's a savior of men. He gives you grace to live each day so that you might hear the message of the gospel and believe and be saved. God is long-suffering. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So what's he do? He lives up to his memorial name. He saves you. But if at any time you die, it's only because you deserve to die. And you deserve to die long before that. You deserve to die the moment you sinned in your mother's womb, but you lived. That's a merciful God. You, you, you deserve to die the moment you, you first told a lie. The moment you would lust. The moment you would hate your brother in your heart. You deserve death. But God let you live. Why? Because he's a savior of all men. But he's a savior of all men, especially of those who believe. In other words, he saves all men temporally and physically, but those who believe, he saves spiritually and eternally. That's what God does. He saves you. That's the God we serve. And that's why the angels never said, or the shepherds never said, a savior. We don't need a savior. But they did, and they knew they did. Well, how do they know? <laughs> because the Old Testament taught they needed a Savior. In fact, listen to what it says over in, in the book of Isaiah. I love this. It's so rich and so beautiful. The Lord says these words. He says, verse 1 of Isaiah 43, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine when you pass through the waters. I will be with you. And through, the fire, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. Nor will the flame burn you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Listen, why is Israel still in existence today? They should not be here. Everybody hates the Jewish nation. They want to wipe them off the face of the earth, but they're still here. Why? Because God's a Savior. He has saved them. He's allowed them to live because he has a plan for them in the future. They might inherit Davidic and Abrahamic promise. He has saved them. He has saved them temporarily and physically. And one day he will save them all spiritually and eternally according to the book of Zechariah chapter 13 and Romans chapter 9. So we know that. And then it goes on to say these words in Isaiah 43, verse number 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. None. There is no other Savior. You can't be saved by anybody else or anything else. Only by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior. And then over Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 21, the Lord God says this. He says, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. There is no one else. He is the Savior of the world. And then over in chapter 49 of Isaiah, the 26th chapter, 26th verse, I'm sorry, it says these words, All flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's who I am. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's this emphasis on the memorial name of God. He says, this is how I want to be remembered. I don't want to be remembered any other way except by this way. I am a redeemer. I am a rescuer. I am a deliverer. That's who I am. So Paul says that our Lord Jesus Christ is the savior of every single man that's ever lived. But he's a savior especially of those who believe. That is, he saves everybody to some extent physically and temporarily. Granting you the opportunity to believe. So don't look at God as some ogre or some nasty judgment uh, God who who stands up waiting to to bring the hammer down on you. That's not true at all. Mm -mm. The very fact that you live and breathe today is because of the goodness of God who is a Savior. That's how he wants to be remembered. So when you gather with your friends and loved ones during the holiday season, during this great Christmas season, you say, look, you're here today, and you don't deserve to be here. You deserve to die. You should have died. But the only reason you're here is because God allowed you to live Because he is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And I want you to believe in him. So I'm going to tell you about my savior. Who on that Christmas night, the words were heard, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Euangelion. I bring you the gospel. And the gospel produces great 
joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow. Man, can you imagine being a shepherd that night, knowing what they knew about the Old Testament, knowing that they didn't ask any questions, they never scratched their head, they never thought for a moment, they never said, let's go back to the library and look up some books in the Old Testament and see what's going on here. No, they made haste. Boy, they went right to the grotto. They wanted to see this one, this expression of good news, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a feeding trough. That's the good news that brings great joy. And I wonder if you understand that. I wonder if you understand that, that you can truly be saved forever from your sin. Because the promised seed from Genesis 3.15 became the promised substitute in Genesis chapter 22. Became the promised staircase in Genesis 28. Became the promised Shiloh in Genesis chapter 49. Became the promised star in Numbers chapter 24. Is the promised seer of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because he's the the promised spotless lamb of Exodus chapter 12. And because of that, he is the promised son of David in Psalm 2, in Psalm 89. He is that promised one that has come, that was clearly painted in the Old Testament for all the Jews to see and know and embrace and understand because his memorial name is this, I am a savior, I'm a redeemer, I'm a deliverer, and I will deliver every man temporally, and I will deliver every man physically, but not forever. But I want to deliver man eternally. And I want to deliver man spiritually forevermore. That's why he came. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because that's the good news that brings great joy. If you know that, your world's never dark. Never dark. It's always bright with the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. What a great day to celebrate you. We thank you, Lord, for Luke chapter 2 and the beauty of what it is you said and how you said it. How it's clearly presented to us, through the message from the angels, to the shepherds, to Mary and Joseph, and beyond. We thank you, Lord, that you are a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Because, Lord, we are the Gentiles. And we have seen the glorious gospel of Christ, and we thank you. And we pray that, Lord, you would go before us. And give us the boldness and the courage to speak about your great memorial name as Savior. That those in our family, those who are our friends, 
will come to know and embrace you as the only redeemer of man for eternity. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming King. Amen.